because we're familiar with them as well as we'll find. Uh, the churches in Galatia had experienced the eff effectiveness, efficacy of the gospel personally, just as everyone who has been born again has. Uh, and so in many respects, there's not a denial of it. And so Paul uses that foundational understanding of where they'd come from, the salvation they'd experienced, and what we receive as a result of that salvation to give context. He also talks and uses the Old Testament to lay a foundation for understanding God's promise of justification by faith, uh, and that alone, just like Abraham. We're going to get into that more next week, though. We'll get into it a little bit this morning. And this ultimately serves as a foundation to an explanation uh, of the purpose of the law and its interaction in the life of the believer and the non-believer. And so we're going to look at those things as we progress through this chapter. This morning, uh, in Acts chapter 3, let's begin in verse 1. Paul says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ has been evidently set forth, crucified among you? So he begins by asking them, who has bewitched you? And that word simply means to deceive by charm, some charisma. They were not uh, they, they were deluded. They were caused to believe something that was untrue. Now, I want you to notice that he is not saying that there's any modicum or any sentiment of truth in this deception, though there may be. What they were deceived by was the influence of those who were perpetrating the deceit. Now, whether they intended to or whether they were sincerely motivated, as I am sure that there are probably some of those Judaizers who were, they just misunderstood their persuasive arguments stood in contrast to the truth of God's word, what he has revealed the gospel to be. And so Paul asked them, who has bewitched you? Who has deceived you? Who has, with uh, insightful arguments and convincing speech, tricked you to, he says, obey something that is not the truth. Now, word obey, uh, we'll understand to some degree because we studied the, this topic of obedience in the past. They, the, their obedience is an outward indicator of where their trust, and that's what this term means, trust, or persuaded by, or to be convinced of. Now, we understand this principle in, in some respects, right? Because we can imagine, because we've seen movies, we've, we've probably, some of us may have experienced our, our, ourselves where you come to a bridge, you know, so around here locally, that means that we're probably crossing a ditch or a canal and some farmer has laid some planks across this canal and you are now going to trust your life to crossing this rickety old bridge. And whether or not you actually set foot on the bridge and walk across it has everything to do with the trust, how persuaded you are, how convinced you are that this bridge will support you. 
And this is exactly the principle, the concept that is being uh, outlined here by Paul. How much trust, how much convincing have you allowed yourself to be deceived by so that you would actually begin to perpetrate and practice something that is contrary to the gospel? Now, we saw an example of this with Peter last week, uh, slightly different motivation, but the churches in Galatia not only have believed a false gospel, but they had been deluded to the extent that they would live out something that was untrue. They would put themselves back into bondage for any reason. So their obedience is an outward, outward manifestation of the inward uh, belief that is an indicator of where their trust lies. And Paul makes the case, he says, and this is some of the immediate context that, that is true for you and I. We're going to talk about this for just a few minutes this morning. He says that it was, you were clearly taught, right? Here is the truth. The truth was laid out before you, uh, and it was evidently set forth. And, and, and that other, in other words, that means that it was clearly taught to the extent uh, that, as he says, that Jesus Christ was crucified among you. Their understanding and their comprehension of what took place, the significance of it, and the authenticity and, and deliverance from the bondage of sin and death that they received was such that it was as if they were an eyewitness. Right? They had tasted and seen that the salvation offered in Jesus Christ was authentic and real. Now, none of them perhaps were actual eyewitnesses. None of them had actually seen Jesus Christ, the risen Lord. None of them had actually perhaps seen him hanging on a cross. However, their experience tells them, just as we would read in John Bunyan's classic Pilgrim's Progress, that his pilgrim comes to the cross and he unshoulders that burden there at the foot of the cross and is liberated and expounds upon the joy and the liberation that he experiences in that moment, they have the same witness of the authenticity of the deliverance that is found only in Christ. Their experience of salvation is a confirmatory witness of what God has done in them. So here is this accusation of the Galatians that you are acting foolishly. You are denying even your own witness, that which God has put within you, that which he has confirmed to you. You're denying what you have received by your actions, by this uh, leaving of the truth. He goes on and he tells us, uh, <clears throat> we, by inference here, Paul doesn't say it specifically, but by inference, we should understand that we should not be deceived. In Matthew 24, 24, Jesus Christ, speaking about the uh, end times, and that's really the context of this passage, uh, but in some respects, there's application to you and I today, because the statement that Jesus Christ makes in this verse, Matthew 24, 24, is true across all eras of time. He says, for there shall arise false Christs and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Or there are going to be those who rise up as false Christs or false prophets, those who would spread false gospels, who would disseminate false truth charismatically and in such a way that there might even be uh, signs and wonders associated with it. 
So much so that if it was possible, if, if they could, their desire and their hope would be to deceive even the saints, those who have been elected by Christ. And in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, if you'll turn there with me, 2 Corinthians 11, and there's nothing uh, that, that should surprise us about this because this, is, this has been going on since the time of Christ. This has been going on in many respects, probably even before the enemy... Satan himself wants to delude people. He wants to deceive them such that they would follow some other truth and not the truth of the gospel. Since the very beginning of time, God's word has been called in question by the enemy of God's people. And that's what we see at the fall, that here is this deception laid forth, cunningly crafted, slightly infiltrated with truth, so much so that it's believable. And what happens, we find Adam and Eve, who are very familiar with God, who have been created with him, who spend time with him in an intimate way that we don't experience personally in this life. And they chose to engage in sin. The deception was so great that they chose to engage in sin. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 13 through 15, Paul is here describing false teachers, and he says, for uh, such are false apostles. Okay, now, when we talk about apostles, there is some idea that they are what they are perpetrating on the people. The deception that is being perpetrated is that what we are giving you is, in fact, the Word of God. That this is Scripture, that this is God speaking through us, just as Paul and Peter and John and those who penned the New Testament would uh, would claim, and what we hold dear, that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. So there is a, a, a perpetration of, of further revelation, if you will, being laid on the people. Sounds familiar. All other religions add some other revelation that needs to be understood. He goes on, he says, these are deceitful workers transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. Right, that they are acting as if they were. And no marvel, he says, it shouldn't surprise us, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing that if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. The long and the short that we understand is that here are the enemies of God's people, those who would deceive even the very elect, even the saints of God, the people of God, and they masquerade, they, they convert themselves, transform themselves into uh, perhaps not angelic as Satan would, but they transform themselves into, and they put on this outward appearance of being the disseminators of God's truth that they become and, and perpetrate the deception that they are uh, given some special knowledge or insight, and this is the way of righteousness. And in Jude chapter 4, as the need has arisen for Jude to uh, <clears throat> expound and, and tell the church to contend, to stand firm, to argue for the faith. He, he says in verse 4, of these who would deceive, and as you read through the rest of the, the book of Jude, 
those 25 chapters, there is a description of characteristics that are true of false teachers. And he says uh, in verse 4, for there are certain men crept in unawares. And when you creep in unawares, nobody knows you're there. Nobody knows that you are deceiving them. Nobody, you're saying enough of the right things. And, and ultimately, we find that this is true and has been true since the founding of the church, that even today, there are those who are crept in unaware, uh, unawares, who masquerade, who put on some semblance of truth, who look and speak charismatically in so much so that they would deceive even the body of Christ if it were possible. And I'm all too convinced that it is more and more possible. How can we stand firm for that which we do not know? If we don't know the Word of God, how can we contend for the faith that we can't even articulate? We live in a world where in Western society and Western Christianity, and I limit it to that because I'm just unfamiliar with outside of that. But in Western Christianity, there is this growing ease with which the church is deceived. And it takes on many forms. It takes on forms of spirituality. It takes on forms of legalism like Galatia, uh, the churches of Galatia are experiencing. It takes on the form of corruption of the gospel, of perversion of the word of truth uh, of God's word. All of these serve to simply remove us from the truth that God would have us to operate in. And the church has largely been unwilling or incapable of being a Berean, somebody who would stand and say, this is not true. So there are these men that are crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our Lord, uh, excuse me, of God, into lasciviousness or uh, license to live however we please, uh, that they, they use the grace of God as a tool to engage in things that we ought not to engage in, to lust after and pursue that lust uh, with all kinds of vigor. Right? We can pursue that. It isn't a service to God or anything like that, but I can pursue it because why would God withhold anything good from me? And ultimately, in the end, there's a denying of the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, whether they outright come out and say that Jesus Christ is not the Messiah, or it's simply a perversion of the gospel, as we talked about in, the, in our introduction in the first chapter of our study of Galatians, that the sufficiency of Jesus Christ is what is being attacked by those who would add to it. That the gospel is not sufficient in itself, that the truth that God promised to save us and then sent his son to do accomplish everything for us is somehow untrue. Are we persuading men or are we persuading God? As Paul would say in Galatians 1.10. So what is under attack is the sufficiency of Jesus Christ and his offering. And those, whether they would deny him in word outright that Jesus Christ is not the son of God, that Jesus Christ is not somehow the savior, or they would just deny it um, in the sense that we have to add something to it. Either way, it's a denial of Christ. So Jude reminds us that we must contend, that we must stand firm, because there are those who are creeping in. 
Now, there's obviously some assumption made on that account that there that we can contend for the faith, that we understand what the faith is, that we know what truth has been revealed to us. That's incumbent upon the people of God to be the Bereans who would study those things. And when those would come in who would teach falsehoods, who would spread or disseminate uh, perversions of the gospel, that we would stand against them, that we would contend for the faith. Paul asks one question of the Galatians in this first verse. He says, who has bewitched you? And with that one question, he asked them, bewitch you that you would live outside of the truth, that you would somehow engage in falsehood. And with that one question, he calls to, uh, to remembrance, number one, the liberation from the burden of works of righteousness. That no longer is our righteousness tied to how we are conducting ourselves, but our righteousness is tied to the justification that we have in Jesus Christ and that alone. It also calls to remembrance the experience of salvation, that understanding that we are now forgiven, and that sense of relief as the Spirit confirms with us the actual occurrence of that justification. And it calls to remembrance the witness of Scripture, what God Himself has said and declared to you and I, what He has clearly foretold since the fall of mankind, since the necessity of salvation became uh, an actuality up to the point where Jesus fulfilled it all. And he delivered upon the promise of redemption through Jesus Christ alone. Now, we probably all have some thing in our life where we act somewhat foolishly, where the conduct that we may have in, in, in many respects is a denial of our own witness of what Jesus Christ has done for us. I'm not here to point fingers and say, well, this is your problem. I can only look at myself and see what the Spirit would do and reveal within me at, at this moment. And the same for you. But I would encourage you to take that conviction that God would sow in our hearts and then allow it to be something that becomes a, sanctif a sanctif sanctificatory, well, that's a big word, that God would be sanctifying you through that conviction that he would be moving in our hearts to the extent that he would change us into the image of Christ. And by his grace, because without his grace, we're not going to be able to, by his grace, we would be submitted to the process of changing the way we understand and think, changing the way we understand and, and contend for the faith. There are those, I'm convinced that there are those things out there that even signs and wonders, right, miracles that are being accomplished, things that would seem impossible, and yet here they are for whatever reason, however it's perpetrated, uh, whether it's actual deception or whether it's some uh, demonic activity, I don't know, but there it is. That even those things, even if it's confirmed, as, as it were, by signs and wonders, if it isn't in accordance with what God has given us in His Word, then it's false. God has concluded revelation. He has stopped it at the end of Scripture. He put a period and said, don't add and don't take away. And so when we encounter those things, we need to be quick to caution people to, to pay attention. We see all kinds of things happening in our world today. Uh, I get all kinds of emails from 
uh, Intercessors for America, which I appreciate their ministry. I appreciate the encouragement and the reminders to pray for certain things. But as of late, and say the last few months since the uh, revival at the one school, that, by the way, uh, listen, and I can't say that it's not genuine in the hearts of the people who were there. However, this school is known for having a revival about every three to five years. They sort of manufacture it. And it's not a theologically sound school. They manufacture it because we, unless we have this extra movement of the Spirit, unless we have this, right, there are some theological problems there. There's some things that are taken out of Scripture uh, that are perverted and put into practice. Now, can God overcome any of that? Can God redeem those things for His plans and purposes? Absolutely He can. But as I stood back and I watched and, and I'm encouraged to pray for all these things, I'm like, okay, let's, let's talk about what's actually happening here. Are people being one to Christ or are they being one to an emotional display? And as I looked at what was happening without the benefit of having talked to a single person who was there, Right, and so I have to give that disclaimer. I concluded, you know, if there wasn't this long-standing history of every three to five years having revival at this school, this one just happened to make news because we have the mechanism of social media and all those things today. Now, you know, I, I think that there was something else, some other agenda being pushed. You know, before every class graduates, we just sort of have to give them a spiritual experience. Now, I don't know if that's true. I don't think that the people who are there uh, are actually setting out and like on this date, we're going to start this date. You know, I don't, I don't think that the deception is to that extent. However, I think that the untruths and the, those uh, who would take the word of God and pervert it can, can be easily duped because there isn't a line in the sand where this is what God has said. It's based upon the experience. It's based upon how I feel about it. It's not based upon what the Word of God says. Could it have been legitimate? Could I be completely wrong on that front? Sure. I will grant you that. I haven't talked to a single person there. But you see my point, what I'm trying to get at here, just using that as an illustration. There needs to be a line in the sand, and the Word of God is that line in the sand. And as we walk in obedience, because the same obedience that would cause us to walk in some untruth should be the same obedience, the convincing, the absolute certainty that this is true should come out in the way that we conduct ourselves. Just as we look at the conclusion of chapter 2 last week, Paul, you know, righteousness is not by our works, and so it doesn't matter how we live in that context. But it does matter how we live because we are the rep representatives, the ambassadors of Jesus Christ. And we want to have a clear and a consistent witness of the authenticity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it is important how we conduct ourselves. That we would walk into obe in obedience to truth and not in obedience to untruth. And like the Bereans who were more noble and were, were recorded in Scripture for all of eternity as such, because they compared what Paul was teaching to the Scriptures. Is this truth? Is this clear revealed? Is this in alignment with what God's Word says? Now Paul goes on and he talks about, in uh, verses 2 and 3, 
Galatians 3, he says, This only would I learn of you. Receive ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith. Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? So he asks the question, Receive you the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Now I want to just uh, begin uh, looking at this idea, and this is not new to us, but it's here it is in the Word of God, so we're going to cover it again. We're going to make sure that we understand it in, some, in the respects that it is pertinent here. In John chapter 1, and I can quote verse 12 to you, but I can't quote verse 13. John chapter 1, <clears throat> verses 12 and 13, says, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Okay, so we have this description of faith being, bringing us into relationship, into a familial relationship. Faith in this Messiah that was promised, this light that has come, this, uh, this God incarnate, Emmanuel, from the context of John chapter 1, who has taken on flesh, that faith in him and what he's about to finish here throughout the rest of what John's gospel tells us is how we are brought into that family. And, and it, there's this discussion of, of birth, this new birth that happens as a result, uh, which we're born not of the blood, and that's a physical birth, nor of the will of the flesh. In other words, that I can will myself to be righteous simply by being self-disciplined or walking in obedience to the law. That's what it's a reference to. I, I can't do anything that would, that would bring that to be. But simply, we are born uh, of God. In John chapter 3, Jesus, and we're going to go there a little bit later if I remember right, John chapter 3, Jesus would talk about being born again. Okay, now turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 17. Paul describes, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, that is, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. When we, when we read that term, the just shall live by faith, those who are justified is what it means. Those who are uh, have been uh, imputed righteousness by the declare, declaratory act of God, the, being justified, those who have received that live by faith, live by trust in that. We are convinced of that. In the same sense that we would live out in obedience, that justification, that's what's being described here that we would continue in that, that we would not uh, take and add to our faith those things that are inconsistent with truth. There are things that we are told in Scripture to add to our faith, virtue and knowledge, right? Those things that Peter would, but we are not told to add to our faith, works. Those things emanate from a changed heart. Out of the abundance of what is inside of us, this understanding of our justification, out of that comes 
a life that is consistent with that profession of faith. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed, verse 17, from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. In Romans chapter 10, Romans chapter 10, verses 16 through 17, uh, and we're just going to pull these verses out. Apologize for not giving you the context, but there is some description here of those who would be sharing the gospel, those who would, would take it to those who needed to hear it, and, and some description about what that looks like. And he, he says here in verses 16 and 17, But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah saith, Lord, who has believed our report. In other words, not everyone who hears the gospel is going to, to, to listen to it. Not everyone's going to submit to it. Verse 17, So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And in sort of a summary statement, we have this understanding that faith, that trust, that, that convincing of this is truth, comes from hearing the word of God. Jesus would say in John 17, 17, sanctify them, sanctify them by thy word, thy word is truth. When people ask me, and people ask me quite often, how do you witness to Mormons? Right? <laughs> and my answer some people get it, and some people are completely flabbergasted by the response because the, the truth is they need to hear the truth, right? My convincing arguments about why their faith is wrong or how they've been deceived isn't going to save them. What they need to hear is the gospel of Jesus Christ. They are lost people. They are sincerely deceived. They need to hear the truth, just as you and I needed to hear the truth to be born again, that's exactly what our Mormon friends and neighbors and family need to hear. They need to see it lived out. They need to hear it clearly articulated. Along the way, might we point out some differences? Sure, if it's appropriate, if it, if it becomes something that is acceptable and, and strategic, as it were, in that gospel presentation. But they need to hear the truth. So this trust, this faith that comes, all of it is related to, all of it is in Jesus Christ and what he has finished. Right? We're not bringing people to faith in anything else. We're not bringing them to faith in, in a good church. We're not bringing them to faith in, in a pastor. Or, or We're bringing them to faith in Jesus Christ. And that is accomplished by the sharing of his word. It's part of the reason that I emphasize and that I hope we've tried to gain some some headway in Bible memory. You know, we used to be true that you could say, we're not always going to have a Bible with you. It's less true today than it was because we could pull out our phone and here it is, right? Here's the Word of God right here. Everybody's, everybody's got it. But how much more powerful of a witness, in my opinion, is it to have it memorized? It's significant and important enough that I would take the time to learn it so that I can speak it to you. If you don't believe me, Sure, well, here's what it says. You can read it for yourself. But I still think it's an important thing. We are not guaranteed to have it. Right? You might have just dropped your phone and backed over it, and now here you go. You got to share the gospel. That guy asks you, well, how come you're not freaking out that you just ran over your phone? And that's a gospel opportunity. Let me tell you why. Because this is not an important thing. But let me tell you what is important. Jesus Christ and your salvation of your soul. That is important. Let me tell you all about it. That obedience to the truth is part of that witness. Now, 
Paul would go on and he would describe to us. So we have this, this um, receiving of the Spirit, by, and, we, and we do so by the hearing of faith. He says, he makes this contrast. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law, by obtaining your own righteousness, or did you receive the Spirit by the hearing of faith? And obviously the answer is by the hearing of faith. That's why we took the time to look at it. That's how we receive the Spirit. Now, I want to talk about what the Spirit means for you and I in this context. Because there is a witness of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. And here we have the Galatians effectively denying the witness of God the Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 1, if you'll turn there with me, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 through 14. Paul in this chapter gives us some indication of what part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit is in the life of the believer. He says, in verse, beginning in uh, verse 13, in whom you also trusted, speaking of Jesus Christ, according to the previous verse, in whom you also trusted, after that you heard the word of truth, how did they come to faith? By hearing the word of truth. The gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that you believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. Now, that term sealed, it simply means marked. You know, when a blacksmith forges something, he takes a touch mark, and he, while the steel is hot enough, he hits it on there, and it's marked forever. Unless you grind it out, everyone will always know, and it'll be clearly and recognizable who, who manufactured this thing, who on their anvil with the sweat of their brow hammered that thing out. It's clear, and that's exactly what that word means, that here we are, those which are God's people that he is fashioning. And one of the first things that he does is he marks us. He gives us the seal. We are his. So we're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession and to the praise of his glory. Right? It is the earnest of our inheritance. It is the down payment. It is the promise that I am going to finish that which I have started. That's what the Holy Spirit means. Just like earnest money on a house. It's the promise that I'm going to fulfill my obligation to buy this home. We've agreed on a price. We've all those things. And I give you, and, and if I back out, you get to keep it for your inconvenience. God's earnest doesn't mean that he's ever going to back out, but what it simply means is that he has given us something that we can hope, sure, for, hope, for sure, have hope in. It is the down payment. It is the promise to finish that which he has began in us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, I think it says exactly the same thing, but I can't remember, so I apologize. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, says that uh, who has sealed us, and given the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. So there again, this sealing and this earnest, this promise of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Now there's something else that happens that the Holy Spirit is a, is a promise of, and it's related to, it's very closely related, but there's a different nuance to it. And we find it in Romans chapter 8. We also find it in Galatians chapter 4. But in Romans chapter 8, keeping in mind that 
God has told us in John chapter 1 that as many as believe on him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God. In Romans chapter 8, verses 15 through 17, says, For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear. Now I want you to think about that. Here is Paul making this case to the churches of Galatia. Listen, don't fall into bondage again. Don't fall to this uh, spirit of fear. In other words, this, I, have I ever been good enough? Have I done enough? Is my righteousness before God enough in the works that I am carrying about? That is the bondage, right? So here we are. We're not given a spirit of bondage in which, the, in which we would fear because how would we ever know if it's enough? And as we're going to find out this morning, it is never enough. Maybe it's next week. I might be getting ahead of myself. But the long and short is it's not. So we live in this state, this constant state of fear. But what have we received? We have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Right? This familial relationship, this family relationship, father, child. We're brought into the family of God. We're adopted into that family. We were outside of it beforehand. We were separate from him. We were Not only were we separate from him, but we were clearly declared by Scripture to be his enemies. If you're not for God, you're against them. And so that's where we stood. Yet we're adopted into the family of God. We're given the spirit of adoption. Right? This confirming of this relationship that we now have entered into with our, say, with, with our Creator through his Son, Jesus Christ. And he says in verse 16, the Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. There is a sense in that you and I as believers should have a certainty because of the witness of the Holy Spirit with our spirit that we are, in fact, born again. That we are, in fact, born from not, not into this physical, fleshy family where we are corrupted by sin, but into the family of God wherein we are justified and declared righteous. Now, are there moments where we may struggle with doubts and, and those things? Absolutely. I'm, I'm not contesting the, the fact that sometimes that happens. I would encourage you, and the way that I've heard it described and I thought it was a great illustration, is to drive a stake in the ground. Right? The Bible says to work out your own salvation, right? to, know, uh, to know whether or not you are in fact saved. Because you can know, and with a certainty. And I think that sometimes the the uncertainty that we hold becomes this uh, this foothold, as it were, for the enemy to prey upon our uncertainty. Right? Well, you just sin. Why would you? People who the people of God would never sin. They wouldn't do those kinds of things. Well, we, I clearly read in Scripture that there are those things that Paul did that hey, he didn't want to be doing. But I don't think that he doubted his salvation. At the end of Romans chapter 7, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of sin? And he rejoices. I rejoice because I am saved, paraphrasing here, heavily paraphrasing, by Jesus Christ. So drive a stake in the ground. The illustration was this man was doubting his salvation. He was wondering, am I saved in fact? And and. He'd had an experience in the past, and he thought that he had been born again, and yet here he is, he's caught up in some kind of sin or whatever in his life, and he has doubts. And so he wrestles with that truth, and ultimately, whether he was saved or not saved, I don't know. And for the sake of 
our purposes, it wouldn't matter. If you are saved and you drive the stake in the ground, now I know with certainty on this day, at this moment, I knew with absolute certainty that I was saved. And, when I, and so this man went behind his barn and he drove a literal stake in the ground and wrote the date on it. This is when I knew that with certainty that I was saved. And whenever he began to have doubts, he would go out and would look, nope, Satan, here it is. This is it. I know that I'm saved. I've already worked it out. You have no stronghold here. Yes, I might have sinned, but you know what? Jesus Christ paid for that sin. And if you aren't saved and in the process of wrestling with and seeing if, if I am saved, you get saved, drive a stake in the ground. Same purpose, same intent. We have this understanding that we, uh, that, that we are brought into the family of God and that as part of his family, the certainty is that we are always part of that family. And it doesn't matter how we live, the failures that we may have, we are part of God's family, adopted into it. And he says in verse 17, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Right? There is this understanding that we are given this spirit of adoption. This promise that I will fulfill everything that I have, I have promised you. That by the, the giving of the Holy Spirit, this promise, this, this down payment, as it were, we have uh, the, the promise of our justification and the reminder of our justification, that forgiveness of sin. We have and we look forward to eternal life. And as we have this Holy Spirit, this, that we're never separated from it. This looking forward to being in the presence of God for eternity. Not only that, but we have the hope of a physical resurrection. As we talk about it, that uh, unification of our spiritual reality, our justification with a physical reality that is uncorrupted by sin. This looking forward to the resurrection, a physical resurrection. The looking forward to the hope of a new creation that is undefiled by sin. And the hope of eternity with God. We have this spirit that confirms these things to us. It is God's willing offering, as it were, to make a promise to you and I that he will finish that which he has begun. But here is the church in Galatia, the churches of Galatia, denying the witness of the Holy Spirit. We have to bring something to the table. We have to offer something of our flesh whether it's circumcision or some other thing, we have to do something to remain acceptable. Denying the witness of the Holy Spirit, that He has finished the work, that He has done everything in Jesus Christ, that we have the hope of eternity, that we are justified. He asked the question in verse 3 of Galatians 3, he says, Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? Paul asks whether or not the faith that we have is faith in the finished work of God, witnessed by the Holy Spirit, or if it's in ourselves and ultimately in our inability to maintain works for righteousness. Now, this isn't a condemnation of godly living, 
but it is a condemnation of misplaced faith and a perverted truth. Our inability should be abundantly clear. You, as well of all of mankind, is sinful by nature. Remember that in Genesis chapter 5, verse 3, uh, after the fall of Adam, it says, and Adam lived so many years, and I can't remember how many years it was, I apologize. You can go look it up. And it begat sons and daughters in his own image. Not, a, not, not in a perfect image. Now, all people are still representative of God. God made mankind in his image, and that remains true, but it is a flawed image. It is an image that is corrupted and defiled by sin. Right, if we took a, a, a steel statue, right, we carved something and, and, it, and then we buried it in the ground and we left it there for 50 or 60 years, right? When we take it out of the ground, we can tell that this is the image that we, we carved. It's the horse that I made all those years ago or it's the whatever it is, but it's corrupted. The intricacies of... of the detail that were visible in the past are no longer seen. We just have a general outline. And in many respects, that's the way that we reflect God's image. It is flawed and corrupted. We are made in God's image. However, the reflection of it is lost in some respect. In Psalm 14, <clears throat> verses 2 through 3, Psalm 14, verses 2 through 3, the Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if, they, if there were any that did understand and seek God. Now, who is he looking down on? The children of men. That's Jews and Gentiles. That's all of mankind. God looks down, and he says in verse 3, They are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. And that's, a, that, that's a clear and a true statement, even today. In Romans chapter 5, verse 12, we have the, this discussion and this clarification on the point of, of man's sinfulness. Romans 5, verse 12, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned, all are sinners. That is our natural estate. I realize there may be some room for discussion about uh, ages of accountability and all of those things, but ultimately... The long and the short is this: God knows, and He's declared all to be under, to, uh, declared all to be sinful. That every man, woman, and child that has ever lived, has been conceived, is sinful by nature. We have this inability to maintain good works, even if at some point in our life we decided. Listen, I'm going to will this thing into existence. I'm going to become righteous. And from that moment forward, we kept the law of God at every single point. We did it flawlessly. It would be just as if we had gone into a store and we'd bought some things on credit, right? We didn't, you, you remember the uh, Little House on the Prairie when they first show up in Walnut Grove and they got to go into the Olson store and they don't have any money. But they're going to pledge the first, you know, some of their first crop pay their bill back, right? They have debt now. They are servants. They're obligated to pay that debt. From that moment, and then, you know, they kind of, I might remember more than one episode here, but this debt runs up, and at some point they have to, to Mrs. Olson, because 
she's Mrs. Olson, right? She decides, no, 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 we're gonna mess with the the whoever the Ingles, thank you. We're not gonna give them any more credit. And at that point, they decide we're just cash on the barrel. From here forward, we will only pay for those things, we'll only get those things that we can afford to buy. I think this is two episodes being mashed together, but you get the point, right? That would be like me saying, listen, I have choosing from this day forward, cash on the barrel. I'm only going to, I'm going to be perfect in regard to the law. I will be righteous, except for all of that stuff that I can't pay back. All of that stuff, that debt that I already owe. There's this backlog, right? We are declared sinners from the very beginning. We can't, even if we move forward at some point in our life, perfectly righteous, we can't cover that which has already happened. It's done and finished. We are still sinners. And we get right down to it, the very simplicity upon it, uh, not even just keeping the entire Mosaic law, but just the Ten Commandments is impossible. As simple as they may be, we often put things in front of God and worship other gods or fall prey to idols. We've all been there where we've told some lie. As small as it may be, there is no grade of sin with God, and a little white lie is still just a lie. It's bearing falsehood. Whatever it may be, not only that, but, but just the spirit of the law, as Jesus confirms, there is a heart behind it. Even if we kept it in the letter of the law, we're missing the spirit of the law. We can't. We are unable. And upon that point, Jesus, in his discussion with Nicodemus, makes it clear in John chapter 3 that you must be born again. Just as we read in Galatians chapter 3, right, we begin in the spirit. As we were born into that new life, we, we begin in the spirit. In John chapter 3, turn there with me for just a moment. John chapter 3, verses 5 through 6. Jesus answered, in regard to Nicodemus' question, how can a man be born again? Jesus answered, verily, verily, saying to you, except a man be born of water, that, that physical birth, and of spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of, of God. But there has to be this spiritual birth. All of that reference to being adopted into the family of God, all of that is the same picture of this new spiritual life, this new spiritual entity. All things are become new. Everything's passed away. We are new creatures in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Terrible paraphrase, but that's the reference. It's the same point that Jesus is making. Now he goes on. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. Right? You and I, Experience the physical birth. We are born of the flesh, and I know that because we're all here. We're born into this world, and that which is born into this world, that which is born of the flesh, is flesh. And it's no better than that. And like Paul, we would conclude, O wretched man that I am, who would save this body of flesh? For there is nothing redeemable within it. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. That doesn't mean that immediately God snaps his fingers and we are taken off into some spiritual ethereal plane where we 
ex exist out in, you know, we're, we're born again and we're still here. But the point is, is that we are now born new. We are that spiritual creation in Christ. And while there is still contention with the flesh because we continue to abide in the same body, the declaration is that we are the same. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. We are justified and confirmed as such by the witness of the Holy Spirit. The flesh, our, our natural estate by physical birth, separate from God, condemned to hell as a result of that, pursues and pays attention to the things of the flesh. That's what we do. That's what we pursue apart from Christ. Even pursuit of good things is simply a, an effort to save itself. It's a motivation. The spiritual rebirth uh, is a deliverance from our natural estate. It's, it's a deliverance from this bondage of having to serve things just to preserve ourselves. We are justified. We're declared to be sinless. Our righteousness is tied to the finished work of Jesus Christ, not something that we do. And we're brought into that fam family relationship with God, and we exist in hope until the redemption of all things. At that point, it's all unified. It's brought together. And our physical existence and our justified existence are one and the same. The witness of the Spirit. Turn with me to John chapter 15. Whoops. John chapter 15. Jesus gives us two other insights into the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the life of the believer. In John chapter 15, verse 26, he says, when the Comforter has come, and the Comforter is, well, he clarifies, which I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth which proceeds from the Father, he shall testify of me. So the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to remind us of Jesus Christ. Those false teachers, those who have crept in unawares, deny him. Yet those of us who are spiritually minded, who have been born again, we are led by the Spirit to confirm Him. And so there will be conviction of the way that we conduct ourselves, and there will be conviction about what we hold as truth and understanding from the Word of God. It confirms Jesus and His gospel. It also, in John 16, verses 7 through 14, says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. So Jesus himself says, listen, uh, disciples, it is expedient. It is a good thing. It is important that I would leave so that you might receive the Holy Spirit. There is something unique in that that we tend to miss. Peter and John, James and John on the Mount of Transfiguration missed it. Peter said, listen, it's really good that you're here, Jesus. We see you in your glory. Let's build some tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses, one one for Elijah, and we'll just stay here forever. And he's rebuked by Jesus. He says, listen, this is not what I came to do. I came to lay my life down. I came that you might receive something, and in part, what we're receiving not only is that salvation, but the promise of everything leading to eternal life. He continues, he says in verse 8, when he is come, when the Holy Spirit is come, he will reprove. That word re reprove simply means to uh, to, to bring to light, to expose, to instruct. 
He will instruct or or bring to light for the world uh, of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. He's going to teach them of sin because they believe not on me. And that will become more clear as we progress and we talk about the purpose of the law. Because the purpose of the law is ultimately to make us realize our sinfulness. The Holy Spirit is going to convict them of sin because they don't believe on him. They are unrighteous because they are separated from God by their sinfulness and are in need of Jesus Christ. Verse 10, he says, of righteousness. The Holy Spirit will instruct them of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Jesus Christ was righteousness embodied. He was perfect. He was without sin, even though he was tempted in every way that we've ever been tempted. Yet he was righteous. We have this standard of righteousness. God's righteousness is that standard. Jesus was the personification of that righteousness. Now that he's removed, we don't see that face-to-face as his disciples don't see it face-to-face. So the Holy Spirit instructs us of righteousness. It clarifies in our hearts and minds an understanding that our righteousness is not equal to God's and therefore is insufficient. Last, the Holy Spirit will convict this, will, will reprove, will instruct the world of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. Right? If you're not for God, you're against him, and that means you're on the wrong team and you're going to experience the same judgment. And what we need to understand is that Jesus is telling us that there is victory in Christ, that the gates of hell will not prevail against us. It's already won. Right? It's, it's already won. The decision has already been made. He says, I have yet many things to say, but you cannot bear them now. How be it? When he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he shall show you things to come. And the Holy Spirit continues to instruct the believe that you and I in the life of the believer. Now, there are things that were yet to be taught, and in many respects, there is some reference here to the, the penning of Scripture. That the Holy Spirit was the person of the Godhead that would instruct, it would inspire Paul or Peter or John to actually pen Scripture. That doesn't mean that you and I are going to have some new revelation as a result of having received the Holy Spirit, but what it does mean for you and I is that we will have clarification of the Word of God and in, in by way of personal revelation of understanding, if I can phrase it that way. The Holy Spirit will bring to mind those things where we are out of sync in our understanding in heart and mind, with what God has revealed in his word. The Holy Spirit, he says in verse 14, shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine and shall show, receive of me and shall show it unto you. <clears throat> the churches of Galatia are denying the witness of the Holy Spirit. They deny that they have received uh, salvation. They deny the promise of God and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ by believing falsehood, by propagating it in the way that they're conducting themselves. He says in verse 4, Have you suffered so many things in vain, if it be yet in vain? Galatians 3, 4. Now there's a temptation, there's a desire to be acceptable. So there's a temptation, right? 
Paul recalls the hardships that the churches of Galatia had experienced. And he asked them the question, did you suffer those things in vain, now being convinced of some false gospel? If that was true, churches there in Galatia, if it was true that Jesus Christ was in fact the Son of God, that he was a sufficient offering for your sin, that through faith in him and him alone, you receive forgiveness of sin and are justified, and you stood for that, you received uh, condemnation, you received persecution, you experienced hardship as a result of standing for that truth. He says, did you suffer those things in vain? Was it worthless? Was it, was it fake? Is it somehow a different truth today? Would you stand for it again? There is, and the churches of Galatia were receiving hardship from outside the church and from inside the church. They're being questioned and persecuted by those who would say there have to be circumcised or whatever it is that is being added to it. And there are those outside the church that are, that are condemning them because you're believing in some odd Christian doctrine or, or whatever it may be. We experience the same thing, both inside and out of the church, pressure to conform to some other untruth. And it is a great temptation for those who have experienced rejection, for those who have experienced persecution for Jesus' sake. It's a great temptation to escape that by compromise. Right, you read through, and we, we celebrate uh, people in Fox's Book of Martyrs who, who would not compromise that Jesus Christ was, in fact, the Messiah. Whatever the case may be, that he was the mechanism of justification, that their righteousness was not tied to, they would not recant, and so they were put to death. And we celebrate that, and rightly so, because it is a great example For as many as stood and are recorded, there are dozens more, hundreds more, perhaps thousands more who did recant. Who in a moment of weakness uh, and that temptation to escape the hardship, to escape the persecution, to escape death, would deny Christ. Now listen, I don't believe that they lost their salvation. They were like Paul, and the thing that I wanted to do is not what I found myself doing. But the thing that I didn't want to do, I didn't want to deny Christ, that's what I found myself doing. There's no degree of sin. Jesus knew and forgave it on the cross. It is a real temptation. And Paul is asking the Galatians, were you willing to experience the hardships that you experienced for some falsehood, or was it in fact true? And if it was true, was it in vain that you would that you would have gone through that stuff? In Hebrews chapter 10, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 through 39, it says, Call to remembrance the former days in which after you were illuminated, you came to understanding of truth, of the gospel. You endure, endured a great fight of afflictions, Part, partly whilst you were made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly whilst you became companions of them that were so used. 
For you have compassion on me and my bonds and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that you have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. Right? There's a description here of those who have been persecuted for their faith. That's exactly what's being described here, just like the churches of Galatia, just like you and I may, maybe not to the same degree, but to whatever degree, have suffered rejection or persecution or mockery or scorn as a result of identifying with Christ, as a result of being born again and standing firm for truth. Verse 35, he says, Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which has great recompense of reward. In other words, Paul uh, or the author of Hebrews, if you don't believe it's Paul, says, stand firm. Stand firm. Don't be swayed in your confidence. For you have need of patience, that after you have done the will of God, you might receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come and will not tarry. And those words are truer today than they were then. It's an odd statement to make about the word of God, isn't it? That it's truer today than it was. It was just as true today as it was then as it is now. Right? We have to have patience. We must, we have to, and that, that patience is in many respects a reference to the obedience. That holding fast, that being unswayed, in the way we would conduct ourselves and in the truths that we would hold and the positions that we would articulate for the sake of Jesus Christ and his gospel. He says in verse 30, 38, now the just shall live by faith. Right, Those who are justified, we read this earlier, the, the, the justified, those who have been born again, who have been declared righteous, will live by faith. But if any man draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Right, there is a, uh, and in some respects, I think I think this is Paul's position. God, God isn't perhaps pleased that we would deny him. And I think that he will work with us to sanctify us through that process. Bring us to a point where we would stand firm. Because if we're honest, each one of us at whatever point in our life, whatever circumstance was there, have denied Christ one way, shape, or form or another. Maybe it's the simple, I don't want to raise confrontation, so I'm just agreeable because I'm unwilling to contend for the faith and stand for that truth. In the name of quote-unquote peace, I will just let that lie. Something as simple as that is the same as the denial of Christ. Because that false position and my, my unwillingness to stand for that truth is just like Peter who would dissimulate, would be hypocritical, and would in his hypocrisy lead others astray, right? This person is believing a falsehood. And by me not saying something, I have confirmed that falsehood to them. Now, we don't have to go around being... being Bible bashers and but what I am saying is that we need to to stand firm and kindly and lovingly uh, because it is the loving thing to do to share truth. 
We don't draw back. We stand firm. He says, and he concludes in verse 39, but we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. Right? We stand firm and trust in the justification that we received in Christ. Verses 6 through 9 of Galatians chapter 3 says, Even as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him uh, for righteousness, know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. So then they which are of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. Okay, we have the witness of our personal experience, right? We understand and we know that we're saved. Not only that, we have the witness of the Holy Spirit that would lead us in the same truth of God's Word, that would confirm and witness with our spirit that we are, in fact, the children of God. Right, all of these things being witnesses of the authenticity and the accuracy and the applicability and the efficacy. Lots of C words there. That was good alliteration of the gospel. Right? All of this stands as a witness, and then we have this witness of Scripture. And Paul uses this in, to, to confirm this promise that God himself, the Word of God, promises that he will save us. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, that's where we first find the promise that God will bless all nations, all families of the earth will be blessed through you, Abraham. And we find that his faith, Abraham's faith, is witnessed by his obedience. You remember when Isaac was taken up the hill, laid on the altar, and as Abraham was about to plunge the knife in, God told him to stop. He says, now I know. Now God already knew. God knows everything. But we have this confirmatory example for ourselves, right? That our, the faith that we are to hold is a faith that would bring us to action. And a faith that simply holds Jesus Christ in high regard but wouldn't spur us to obedience may be short of saving faith. And I realize that that is a fine line to draw. And I can't draw that for anybody here. You have to draw that on your own. You have to work out your own salvation. You have to see whether or not you are in the faith, as Scripture says. But the faith that Abraham had was a faith that was expressed outwardly in the way that he conducted himself. And that's the point that James is making in James chapter 2. Right? When you talk about faith, when we talk about the grace of God and, and being saved by grace through faith and that alone, there are those who are very quick to respond with some understanding from James that, hey, James says that you aren't saved by faith. And in James chapter 2, verse 21 through 23, and we, we studied through this, but let's go look at it. It says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac upon uh, his son upon the altar? Seest then how faith wrought with his works, by works was faith made perfect. Right? There's this question. Right? Abraham, his faith was confirmed, his justification that was counted to him, his faith that was counted to him as righteousness. Right? That was confirmed by his willingness to offer Isaac, by his willingness to walk in obedience. That those works were confirmatory of what was inside. 
You see then, he says in verse 24, how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. That the outward expression of that faith would be consistent with the profession of that faith. The churches of Galatia, for in whatever way, shape, or form, are not witnessing faith and obedience. They're operating just like Peter was, and he's hypocritically saying one thing with this group of people, yet doing another thing with this group of people. And in the same way, we might name the name of Christ, but we might conduct ourselves in a way that is inconsistent with that profession. And those people that, that are willing to do that, that are unwilling to draw a line in the sand and say, this is how we conduct ourselves because this is what the Word of God says. Now, I realize that there may be some difference in, in that application. right? God doesn't say, thou shalt wear a skirt that is this long, that, that is of this color of material or whatever it may be. He doesn't outline, but he says women dress femininely like women and be modest. And men dress like men and be modest. Right? Within that, there is some flexibility. And we understand that. There is some liberty in Christ that we may say, this is the standard for our family. That's the standard. And I realize that. But we're still upholding the same spirit that we are not causing anybody to stumble, that we are dressing in ways that are appropriate, that we are representing God and the profession of faith that we hold in the way that we are dressing. And that's just one example. There are those that have some convictions about what they eat or what they don't eat. There are those who would have convictions about what version of the Bible they would use or wouldn't use. There are all kinds of things that we may have some liberty in, and it may take a different outward form, but, the, uh, but, the, but it's all the same expression of the same faith, the same trust. In Romans chapter 4, I hope I didn't just muddy the water. <laughs> in Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, verse 3. For what saith the Scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that works is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that works not, but believes on him that justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Even as David also described the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputes righteousness without works. So what does the Scripture say? What, what, what do we read here? The Scripture says that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Genesis 15, 6. God declares and by his declaration gives you and I understanding that it isn't by the works of the law or the way that we conduct ourselves that we are justified. It is simply by faith, just like Abraham. And faith, the Abraham's faith was that which would live it out. It would be manifest on the outside. It wasn't a, a profession of faith only. Jump down to verses 9 and 10 in Romans chapter 4. Come the blessedness then upon the circumcision only or upon the uncircumcision also. We say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. How was it then reckoned? When he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision? Not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. Right? There's, I read that because there's some foundational understanding there as we progress. Not this morning, but next week, this understanding about the law. Here is this righteousness being counted to Abraham before the law existed. It was always by faith. 
was always by faith. When we talk about the word accounting, simply it means to take an inventory. The long and short is that the righteousness of God was found in Abraham's inventory. Right? When God comes through and he does an evaluation of what's inside you and what's inside me, he doesn't come and find our righteousness, but he simply finds the righteousness of Christ in our inventory. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, verses 19 through 21, familiar passage for many of us, but 2 Corinthians 5, I can get there. Verse 19, to wit, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. In other words, God's not leaving it in our inventory. That's the same word, accounting, imputing. It means the same thing effectively. God's not leaving in our inventory our trespasses, our sin, and has committed unto us the word of reconciliation, right? God has removed those from us. He's taken out of our inventory our sinfulness. Now, when we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, you be reconciled to God. Verse 21, for he has made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. We talk about atonement, we simply, by way of oversimplification for understanding, we talk about it as an exchange. But here is God taking our sinfulness out of our inventory, taking the righteousness of Christ, and putting it in our inventory. So that when God comes around and he looks in your heart, and he looks in my heart, he doesn't see our righteousness, he sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. A righteousness that is equal to his. And that he might remain just, he takes our trespasses, our sin, and he puts it upon Jesus Christ. And that's what's found in his inventory. He was made sin and received the punishment for it. So that we might all be reconciled. There's this discussion, this brief discussion about being in verse 7. He says, know you therefore that they which are of faith, right, those who have come into the faith, who are born again, who are now the children of God. He says, the same are the children of Abraham. The promise to Abraham was that his seed, his, his lineage would be that which would be unquantifiable, right? Like the stars in the heaven or the sand upon the shore. It would be innumerable. And when we're talking about this, we have this discussion here that those who are of the faith are the children of Abraham. Now in John chapter 8, verse 39, John 8, 39, <clears throat> they answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said unto them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. Now, I want you to understand, and, and it's important for us to realize the law doesn't exist yet. Here he is, here's Jesus having this conversation with these Jews. And they want to know, what, what do we have to do? And, and Jesus said, listen, if you were the children of Abraham, because they've just made some points about being the children of Abraham, if you were the children of Abraham, you would do the works of Abraham. What did, a, what did Abraham do? 
he believed. Ultimately, the long and short that Jesus is saying is that he operated in faith, that he believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. Not that he worked, not that as the Pharisees would say that they, they maintained some form of righteousness by their works, but simply that they believed and it was counted to them as righteousness. Now in Romans chapter 9, Romans 9, 6 through 8, not as though the word of God has taken none effect, for they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. Right When God's talking about, now just be careful, right? I want to make sure that we understand that there is, and we, we talked about this as we studied through the book of Romans, the church does not replace Israel. But what God is saying here is that everyone that is in Israel, everyone that is a physical descendant of Abraham, doesn't necessarily make them one of the people of God. That's, that's his only point. Okay, so everyone that's in Israel is not of Israel, is, is not Israel. Verse 6, uh, Romans 9, now verse 7. Now, neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time will I come and Sarah shall have a son, right? So, so there's this, looking forward to, and this promise, Abraham had two children, right? He had, he had Isaac, and he had, uh, with Hagar, help me out, Ishmael. I was thinking Issachar. I was like, that is wrong, because he's one of the, anyway. New start with an I. Ishmael. Thank you, guys. But one is of the flesh, and one is of promise. There's an illustration in that for you and I, that we are born after the flesh, and we're not part of the people of God, yet, by adoption, we can be brought into that family. We can be made part of that family. This is looking forward to, for the Gentiles, this promise of redemption, this promise of salvation. And again in Romans chapter 4, some different verses. Uh, beginning in verse 11, he said, The sign of circumcision a seal of the righteousness of the faith, we've talked about this before, which he had yet being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of them all that believe. Right. So who is Abraham the father of? Who are counted as his children? Those who would come to faith. Those who would believe. And the sign of circumcision is simply a sign of the trust, the outward symbol of Abraham's trust in what God had promised. Just the same as him offering Isaac. It was an outward symbol of and reminder of we believe God, and we're going to operate in obedience to that. And he, and he goes on, he says, even though they're not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also. Verse 12, uh, and, the, and the father of circumcision to them who are not of the circumcision only, but who also walk in the steps of that faith of our father Abraham, which he had being yet uncircumcised. For the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. If we jump down to verses 22 and to 25, now it is, it is not written for his sake alone, it was imputed to him. Right? It wasn't written, it wasn't recorded for Abraham's sake alone that faith was counted as righteousness. The, the exchange of inventory of, of transgression and sin with the righteousness of God was made by faith. That wasn't recorded just so that Abraham would know it. It was recorded for other purposes, and he, and he goes on to tell us, but also for us. 
right? It was recorded for you and I. It was recorded for those who would come after for the not only the nation of Israel, but for the Gentiles, for every man, woman, and child who would hear the gospel. It was written because the illustration of faith being counted as righteousness is an example of how we come to faith in Jesus Christ. And that brings about our righteousness. To whom it shall be imputed if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. So here is the witness of Scripture confirming that, listen, this is the truth of God. This is how righteousness, this is how we are justified. It has nothing to do with works. It has everything to do with faith in Christ. Yet the churches of Galatia and many churches today would be willing to deny it, would be willing to say that there is some other way, that it is somehow insufficient, that, that, that the witness of my experience, which I'll grant is the weakest of all of these witnesses, But there it is, I've been born again, and I'm a new creature in Christ, and it is an undeniable experience. And the witness of the Holy Spirit that God gave is his promise to fulfill everything that is associated with that, of his promise that Jesus' sacrifice was enough, that he is just and has justified us. And the witness of the Word of God, which is his account throughout all of history of his redemptive purpose for mankind. We have this promise of all nations being blessed. And over and over again, throughout the Old Testament, this promise is made to, first to Abraham at the execution of that covenant in Genesis chapter 12. But it's reiterated and restated numerous times throughout the book of Genesis. Genesis 18, 22, 26, 28. If you guys are note-takers, there they are. There's this reference to all nations being blessed, and it's ultimately a statement of God's redemptive purpose, that through Abraham, through his son Isaac, the son of promise, this illustration of justification by faith, and this adoption into the family of God, that all nations will be blessed. That God will provide salvation, the mechanism of salvation, his son Jesus Christ on the cross for every man, woman, and child. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It's always been this way. So we look at what he, this little bit, and there'll be more on Abraham next week, but this little bit, this, this tiny little bit that Paul uses to confirm That salvation is by justification of faith only. Two more references, and we'll conclude this morning. In John chapter 6, John chapter 6, verses 28 through 29, Jesus has just been asked in verse 28, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? In other words, the question that Jesus is being asked is, what do we do to be righteous? How do we accomplish those things and become acceptable before God? And Jesus' answer is simple, and it's confirmatory of everything that we read in Scripture. He says in verse 29, 
Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he has sent. Jesus says, listen, the only thing that is required of you is that you would believe on me. God in the flesh, the, the propitiation for your sins, the offering for your righteousness. If we want to work the work of God, if we want to become acceptable and righteous before him, this is the work that we, this, this is it. Belief. Faith in Jesus Christ, he who God has sent. And in Galatians chapter 3, verse 9, so then they which are which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. Those who participate in that work, that, that belief, that trust in Jesus Christ, will be those who are adopted into that family, who are blessed in the same way and in the same vein as Abraham was. That their faith, our faith, will be counted unto us as righteousness. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to be in your word. We praise you uh, for the clarity and the consistency of Scripture throughout Genesis to Revelation. From the beginning of time to the end of time, Lord, your redemptive purpose is clear and concise. And Lord, I praise you that it has nothing to do with how we've conducted ourselves. It has everything to do with the faith that we've exercised in Jesus Christ. Lord, and I also thank you that as a result of that faith and the reception of your grace and with the filling of your Holy Spirit, Lord, that we might live a life that is acceptable to you. We might honor you in the way that we conduct ourselves and have a consistent profession and living witness. I pray, Lord, that you would by your Spirit convict us. Those areas that we might need to conform to your will, to your truth. And Lord, I also pray that you would give us uh, soft hearts that we might be receptive of the conviction of the Holy Spirit in our life. We praise you and thank you for the witness and the promise that you've given us, the seal that we receive from you. And Lord, we look forward to the unification of our existence, justified, righteous before you in a physical world that is uncorrupted by sin. We praise you and we thank you, Lord. And as we have opportunity now to worship you, to sing praise and adoration for all that you've done, God, I pray it would be the offering of our lips and a sweet savor unto you. In Jesus' name, amen.